just open us with a quick word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your many blessings. Uh, most especially, we'll thank for, we're thankful for the gift of Jesus. And as we're learning, as we read through the spirituality of the cross, the gift of Jesus is the one that makes all the difference, that changes the world, that changes us, uh, and gives us new life and eternal life. So today, as we continue to learn more about that gift and about your your Son, our Savior, uh, we ask that you bless our time together, that it may be edifying in spirit um, and increase our knowledge of you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, we were supposed to cover chapter 2 last time, but as per usual, I'm a chatty box and we didn't get there. So uh, I have, we're just going to quickly run through the means of grace. I think most of you in here are familiar with that concept. Um, but uh, so a couple of the general quotes there. Um, we're, we're not about the Christian faith for a particular result about behavior. Right. Um, so this is one of the reasons that um, when you reduce things to moralism, you miss the main thing of the Christian faith, which is Jesus, because you can't reduce the person of Jesus to a moralism. Right. Um, and it's also why uh, the sacraments are so important in our church, because they are the things of Jesus that are given that actually are part of the new transformed life that we have in Christ, right? Um, and it's not something that we earn by doing certain things, whether it's sacrifices or rituals or behaviors of righteousness, okay? Um, and so he's going to be beginning to kind of use this to set things apart for when he introduces the term theology of the cross, okay? Because really what we're getting at is a unique faith within the context of world religions, but even within the context of some denominations of Christianity. Uh, and the, the tricky nature and the pernicious nature of always wanting to change things into a theology of glory, which is another term that you have probably run across in there a couple of times. So, uh, for the means of grace, what are the means of grace that are identified here? There's three main ones. Baptism. Baptism is one. Communion. Communion. God's word. God's word. Very good. Right. So all the work of the church flows through those things. Right. Now the primary one is the word because the word is what uh, enables baptism to be baptism, and it enables communion to be communion. Right. That's why we always say the words of institution. That's why at every baptism we say, I "Baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit." Right. Because those were part of the command that made them the sacraments that instituted them. Right. Now, um, for Lutherans, um, here is uh, what I kind of liked the way he put this. It's on page 44, that second quote there. Central to every dimension of Lutheran theology and spirituality, its source, its method, and its practice is the insight that God himself addresses human beings through human language. So... I think uh, somebody's picking up the, the pew from the, the hallway upstairs. Um, <clears throat> so the, like that's such a basic aspect of our faith that I think we often overlook sort of the radical nature of that, that God uses our own language to communicate to us. Right? Um, so, and that kind of sets the tone for this means of grace because what's the primary identifier of Jesus? He is the Word made flesh. 
right? Um, the second important aspect of the means of grace is that it means that God comes from outside of us, right? Um, so that next quote there from page, top, I think it's at the top of page 45. I don't know why I'm not looking at the book. I have it in my hand. Um, yeah, very top of page 45. For Lutherans, God comes from the outside, right? Why would that be significant, It comes down to us as opposed to the other religions where we try to Very good. get to him. Very good. It identifies the directional nature of our faith in Christ, that it's God who does the first move always. Right? So we're not advocating for a set of beliefs or practices or behaviors by which you appease God's wrath for your failures. Right? Where you're sort of elevating yourself so that he will then view you as worthy. Um, instead, we believe that God comes down to us and he comes outside of us. Now, let's think of some practical implications of that that you, you can um, sort of meditate on. One is, what happens, if God comes from outside of us, what happens, like maybe today was your day. On Sunday, you were just sort of like, blah, in the service, right? You didn't have any moving spiritual moments. It was really hard for you to pay attention during the sermon, and maybe you didn't fully understand what it was about. And you go home thinking, well, oh, that was rough. How, how should you feel about that? Should you have any doubts as to whether or not your faith was strengthened when you went to church? You shouldn't. I mean, we probably do sometimes, but... Um, his word is living and active, and we're there, and so it is still working. Very good, right? So that's part of our comfort in the promises of God, is that they're true even when we're not, right? That they're faithful even when we're not faithful, right? Um, and so, and I've seen this, and maybe you've experienced it if you've, if you've gone to another kind of church uh, for any period of time, that when the experience of God is what worship is all about and it's internalized, when it's not there, you begin to have doubts of faith. Well, am I really a believer because that didn't do anything for me? Or um, I, can't, I can't seem to focus on what's going on right in front of me. Like, did it, did it take? Right? Those are very common thoughts among uh, Christian denominations and religious practices where it's about the things you do and the orientation of your mind because you've internalized God's action as only being valid if you're receiving it in a certain way. Right? And with God being outside of us, it means his actions are there and they're doing the thing he intends them to do, whether or not you're paying attention. Right? Uh, and it explains some of our practices. Like, for example, that's why uh, we don't give communion to somebody who's not a believer or unbaptized or who doesn't share our confession. Right? Because they are still receiving the body and blood of Jesus, even though they don't recognize it as such or even believe it's there. Right? Um, and the scriptures say that that is um, something that incurs God's judgment on them concerning the body and blood of Jesus. Um, because I can't think of a better application of throwing pearls before swine. Right? It's like, imagine your son died for the world, and then you gave him the, the very sacrifice, the fruits of the sacrifice of the cross, and they, they treat them with sort of indifference, and they don't even pay attention to what's actually there, right? Um, yeah. 
although different, is that somewhat like analogous to when we try to uh, put a seed of faith in somebody who's a non-believer? And, the, and you never know if that's going to germinate 10 years down the road or yes. whatever. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's not us doing that. Correct. It's the Holy Spirit. Correct. Okay. Yeah, and, and really only having this sort of means-oriented approach will allow you to do that without becoming discouraged. Mm-hmm. Um, so the image that's often associated with that in the scriptures is like a farmer planting seed, right? And he doesn't make it grow, right? He doesn't sit there and go, grow, grow, grow. Right? I mean, he could, but it won't work, right? Because... It's God that gives the growth, right? And so it's a similar thing with witnessing is we've been given certain tools and means and things to do, like a trowel, and we dig it up, and we put the seed in the soil. But then from there, it's God that does the rest, right? Um, And Paul echoes that as well. Um, So that's a comfort for us, and it's an aspect of a unique, uh, it's a unique aspect of our confession of the Christian faith is this emphasis on God's salvation being extra nos, the outside of us um, coming to us. It's the basis for why I'm always talking about how on Sunday you're there to receive and then respond in thanksgiving. You're not there to do and perform and become worthy of receiving anything. It's being given to you because it's coming from outside of you. Um, Okay. so that sort of answers, uh, Dave's question answers the first discussion question at the bottom. How do we attain a saving, life-changing faith? Well, it's kind of a facetious question. We don't attain it, mm-hmm. right? It's given, right? And it's given through these means. Right? And the means have been given to the church. So uh, one way to kind of explain this in a sort of difference between orientation and approach between Christian denominations would be if a Baptist minister comes to a town that has no church, his first method of evangelism is not going to be build a church. It's going to be go door to door and tell people about Jesus, and eventually that will form a church. That's the hope, right? For a Lutheran missionary, um, it would be we need to establish a church. Why? Why is there the difference? Means of grace. Right. You need to have a church and a pastor in order to have the means of grace, right? And the means of grace are the roots of the life of the church and the source of the ability of the church to evangelize. So uh, one thing I felt growing up all the time was that we were like skipping a bunch of steps by always talking about going out and telling people about Jesus because people didn't even really know how to begin to do that, not just verbally, but spiritually. They weren't being fed in such a way that enabled them to do that, right? And so one of my emphases as a pastor has always been we need to get our house in order. Not, you know, you can't totally wait to do it, but we need to be paying attention on this because it turns out evangelism goes from the altar out. It doesn't start at the end of your church doors. And so if you're not being evangelized by the means of grace on a regular basis, there's no way you're going to talk to your coworkers and friends and neighbors about it. You don't have the juice, right? Because it doesn't come from you. Right? It comes from him. And so if you cut yourself off from the things that are coming from him, you don't have anything, right? Um, so that outside emphasis is really a critical thing um, to understand. Okay. Um, let's see. And feel free to, if you had something underlined or a question you have, just to chime in. I'm just going to kind of go some stuff that I highlighted here. Um, it also, it's all, there's also a comforting quote on 47. He's not ashamed to have his word communicated by the halting speech of his followers. Um, you know, he knows who you are when he sent you. Right, um, he's not, he's not looking for the perfect people. Um, 
the, he has a section on the emphasis on the Bible there. So the Bible is the center of the authority of the Christian faith. Everything's measured against that. Um, and you have the scripture there from Second Peter 1. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, says the Bible about itself. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Um, one element that I do want to highlight on page 51 towards the top and I think I put this quote in here yeah, um, the second quote under on the Bible to read the Bible as a spiritual venture is to be confronted in the most personal terms with God himself so we believe that reading the Bible is not merely an intellectual act of gaining knowledge but it's actually a spiritual interaction directly with God He's coming to you in his word. Um, And it's a spiritual thing. And the very next sentence he has there is, the confrontation is terrifying. Um, And ironically, I didn't even think about it until just now, but think of the gospel reading today. Um, If it's just intellectual, we want our temptation is, I've got to soften that, I've got to explain it away. He can't mean that. But if it's a spiritual encounter with God, I have to take him at his word. He does mean what he's saying there. Um, Then we had the section on baptism. Um, Let's see. I like this quote at the bottom of 53. It is certainly very odd that water, bread, and wine should have such significance, though perhaps it is no more odd than than that ink on a paper and sound wave should convey the word of the infinite God, an unlikelihood that will be taken up in the next chapter. Right, so we're always finding the extraordinary things of God in really boring, mundane stuff. Right? Um, words on a paper, uh, a sinful man preaching from a pulpit, water, bread and wine, etc. All right, um, let's see. Yeah, the rest of this is pretty standard stuff for the means of grace chapter. Were there any questions that you guys had on that or anything that jumped out at you in chapter 2? It just goes over baptism and then and then communion. Um, One of the things that, that I, I really liked, um, it's on page 78 of my book, but it talked about communion. It says, I'm in fact, I'm touching in fact the risen Christ as the first disciples did. I hadn't really thought of it in that way, yeah. taking communion mm-hmm. actually touching him. Yeah. Right. And it, and, uh, and maybe even more accurately is, is that he's touching you, yeah. right? That he's this is his reaching out to you for and that's why it is for the forgiveness of your sins, right? Um yeah, and this that this is where I feel um as if particularly in our church body we really scaled back the sacramental language in the last 40 years, um, precisely because it was one of the things that really set us apart from most Christian denominations surrounding us. And there was a lot of evangelicalism that became infused in our churches um, through methods and, and music and practices. And um, like one of the consistent problems that I have with picking contemporary music, there's a lot of great contemporary music, but none of it is going to refer to the body and blood of Jesus. 
they'll say a cup of love or a communion of people or they'll refer in general terms to the crucifixion of Jesus, but they won't ever talk about the blood and the body and the bread and the wine and, and that you're literally receiving the forgiveness of sins by you because they don't believe that stuff, but we do. And so we've lost a little bit of this tactile sense of like, no, that's, we believe that's literally Jesus and that you're, you're eating his body and his blood, right? And that by doing so, you're proclaiming his death. You are now joined to the, the fruits of his cross, which is what, is what kills the old you and brings the new you to life, right? So, I mean, theoretically, if somebody asked you what you did this weekend, you could say, well, I died to myself. I was put to death in my sin, and I was given new life in Jesus. You could say that instead of, I went to church, because that's what's happening. And um, if you've ever been blessed to go to a church where they talk about that quite openly, it is a very different experience, right? You know something weird and other is happening there when you come in as a visitor because they're not talking in any of the ways you've ever heard, right? They're talking about a God who, who dies for, for unworthy people, who continually comes to his people in mercy and grace, who constantly is putting himself in tiny little boxes of means for our benefit, and that they're coming to you through all these normal things, right? Um, and like when you hear a talk like that, it's like at the very least, it's sort of like, what is what's happening here, right? Because who talks like that? Only Christians do, right? Um, and so there is kind of a resurgence, not even within our own denomination, not only within our own denomination, but in general Christendom, um, with this more historical emphasis on 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 these aspects of Christianity, because. The sacramental understanding of Christianity was the majority of the history of the church until, like, essentially, like, 150 years ago. Um, so, uh, so I think we're reclaiming that. Like, the fastest growing Christian denomination right now. Do you know what it is? Among young people. Catholic. Orthodox. Yeah. And they lean into all this stuff because people are searching for the other divine, timeless stuff. And we've really kind of, whether it's because of American culture or just enlightenment, we've really stripped a lot of that talk away. Because you sound like a loony person if you're like uh, literally touching Jesus and eating his body and drinking his blood. Like if you don't know anything about that, you're like, what? What now? You're eating a person? Right? Like that's the weird Christian stuff. Um, that's one of the reasons for the reality of what the gospel talked about today. Like, not everybody will receive that and believe it, right? Because it's weird and, and it's otherworldly, right? But it's also the source of all the beauty of our faith as well, right? Because I imagine the reason that stood out to you is you're like, well, oh, that's that's a beautiful thought. Well, you know, you, you envy, or I envy, the disciples being right there right. and getting to touch them. I get to, too. Get, just, you're right there, right? Yeah. You're hearing the same words yeah. and touching the same body. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the purpose of those gifts. Yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty great stuff. All right. Okay, so let's go on to uh, chapter 3, the hiddenness of God. Um, so, um, let's look at a couple of the discussion questions. They're on the back side of that sheet there. So on page 71 and 72, um, well, let me share a quote first. I, I like the quote in his first paragraph here. What page is that, 69? Yeah, 69. 
Um, it seems strange to think that Christ is actually present in such a saving way in that little wafer of bread or in the small sip of wine or that God speaks to us in a literal book of ink, paper, and binding or that the pastor's sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to create faith in our hearts. These are rather spectacular claims for what goes on in an ordinary church service with its weekly sung hymns, crying babies, and fidgeting people in their pews. It is hardly credible to think that such mundane and frequently dull settings could be the scene of such high and holy spiritual presences. Right? Um, so this is sort of highlighting the theme of the hiddenness of God, is that God doesn't ever seem to appear where we expect him to appear. Right? Um, and it's true of Jesus himself. If you would think the Son of God is coming down to earth, you wouldn't have picked him to be born to Mary of Nazareth and being born in a stable in a small town. Right? We wouldn't think that. We would think, well, he's going to be born to a king and he's going to be in a palace or he's going to come down in glory and everybody's going to know who he is right off the bat, right? all that kind of stuff. Right? Except God seems to always hide himself in these places that we're not expecting to find him. And the point he's making is that's still true. He's hidden in you, as weak as you are and as sinful as you are. He's hidden in you. He's hidden in our gathering of a bunch of weak and sinful people who are desperate for the forgiveness of Christ. He's hidden in the bread and the wine and in the book and in the speaking of the words of someone like me, right? who's just as sinful as all of you. So are they all examples of what he's, I think he called mask of God? Is that yes. all of those? Even, even yeah. Christ coming to the, that was well so the like in that sense it wouldn't be a mask of god because he's god himself but right. the masks of god are the he's using that synonymous with vocation okay. because in your vocation that's how you function okay. right um and so like the pastor is a mask of god in his vocation because what he's supposed to be bringing to you are the things of god mm-hmm. right okay. um and so the idea of vocation is this idea that the hiddenness of God is present in those things because he's using ordinary people and things right. to do these, these supernatural so divine they're related, the two things. chapters. I've got to yeah. yeah. So he's kind of building things up to that. Because that, that's really the biggest like, day-to-day practical application of these teachings, right? Because he's, he's, he's beginning with justification and setting up how that works and how you don't earn it and it's given as a gift of faith and you can trust in it because it's on these things of God that are coming outside of you into you. And then once you've been justified, he goes more into the sanctification, which would be the vocation. But they're not unrelated, mm-hmm. right? They're separate, but, but not unrelated. Yeah. Jackie, you looked like you were going to say well, something. Well, I just, you know, you think of hidden, and you think of it's hidden, you can't see it. But it's really the opposite. He reveals himself in those right. ways. Not even mm-hmm. hides himself in those I guess it's. So the hiddenness, I think of it hidden. the hiddenness part comes from. Um, imagine you're a person who has no faith and you come to our church service. You'll see none of the things we're talking about. You won't be able to recognize them as such, right? And that's what we believe. When you receive faith as a gift from the Holy Spirit, that's what happens, is you're now able to believe and to see the things of God, even though they're not visible, right? So, um, like, that's why Peter is such a different person on Pentecost than he was weeks before denying Jesus in a courtyard. It wasn't because he gained some new knowledge and, and put on a pair of glasses. It was because the, he had received the Holy Spirit. Right. So um, you really, really are hidden to other, other people. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the dilemmas of the church because 
we don't we we want to fit in. We we're like everybody else. We want to fit in, and so one of the the temptations that's always there for the church is, like let's you know it usually starts with let's minimize the weird things we say, and eventually gets to let's just pretend they don't exist, and then eventually what happens is you're the same as everybody else, which is partially what we want. The old Adam and us wants. We're like well. You know, if I'm a Christian, then that means I can't go to this baseball game on Sunday because I have to go to church, and I've got to explain that to my friends, and that's going to, you know, that's going to create weirdness, and I don't want that, right? Uh, instead of viewing it as this is an opportunity for me to witness to my friends about Jesus, not by preaching to them, but just by saying, hey, man, I can't come. I'm going to church, right? Um, we have to train, we have to be trained to think that way because it does not come naturally to us. What comes naturally to us is, like, we want to be like everybody else. Right? And this stuff is the weird stuff. Right? Um, and it's the stuff that people won't understand when they come in, and it's okay that they don't. It would be weird if they did. Because if it's coming from God, and they're not a part of his church, there's no way they can understand the things of God yet. Right? That's a pretty natural thing. That was something that growing up I always found weird, is that there's always this sense from an evangelistic perspective, of like, well, you can't do a bunch of stuff that people don't understand. It's like, why? Like, my teacher regularly does things that I don't understand, and that's the whole purpose for which I'm in the class. And usually, I have a much more curious reaction to things I don't understand than when I come somewhere and I hear everything that I hear everywhere else. Then I'm just like, well, what's the point of coming here? I can hear this at home on my couch, in my PJs, or at the, at the baseball game, or among just my friends, hanging out at the bar, whatever it is, right? Um, but like, it's sort of like a riddle, right? If everyone's told you a riddle... Like, they usually have to tell you, like, okay, can I just tell you the answer? Because you're sitting there like, i got to figure it out, okay? I'm going to figure it out. Don't tell me, right? Um, so I always was puzzled by this, like, obsession with, well, nobody, they, they have to understand everything. Right? That was the basis for, like, seeker services. It was also the reason that they never worked. Because the seeker service was, like, a, meant to be, you can understand the argument right there. It's meant to be, like, an introduction. We'll save the hard stuff for later. And so all the stuff in a secret service was things that are friendly to somebody outside, and by friendly they mean things that they would understand, right? The problem was they never wanted to leave the secret service <laughs> because it, it, at some point, apparently, you have to believe the weird stuff of Christianity to really, to really be it. And delaying that doesn't really seem to help anybody. It just means that we've created now a false, comfortable space for you that doesn't really do anything for you. Um, and so the... Like, you know, it's just, it's, it's funny how those things develop. But the, the means of grace and the hiddenness of God are built in, right? That's one of the reasons why what Jesus has been describing to us from Matthew 10 the last three weeks are inevitabilities in some sense, right? It isn't, like, we like to think, well, that person didn't believe because I was kind of mean, I lost my temper, or I didn't explain it clearly enough. It's like, no, Jesus is saying sometimes they just don't believe you. And it's not that they're rejecting you. They're rejecting me, and that's going to happen, right? We hate that. It's a good thing to not like that. We don't want people to reject Jesus. But, like, if you can establish, was I unreasonable? Was I mean? Did I, you know, okay, none of those things, and they still don't believe? That's what he said, right? That was going to happen. So, relying on the, what, what really happens when you do these things with, like, the means of grace and the hiddenness of God is you're relying on the Holy Spirit to do his job, and you're not trying to take it away from him, which is what we're always tempted to do. Right? We're always tempted to say, well, Holy Spirit, that's a little scary. 
and complicated. Why don't we start here, and then they'll be convinced. And ever since we've started employing those practices, the church has been on the decline. And not because all the ideas were bad, but the heart behind all those ideas was not trusting in God to do his work in his ways, merely being used as an instrument. But I know better, not only than God, but apparently than 1,900 years of Christians Mm -hmm. on how this whole church thing works. And that's probably why the young people are coming back to the... Yeah. Well, I mean, if you you think about it, like, initially that's going to have a lot of appeal, right? Because Mm -hmm. maybe you've been stuck at a church that you felt stale or doing the same stuff, or you you just weren't happy that God was hidden in all this boring stuff. Like, he needs to burst out onto the scene in a spectacular way so people can understand him, right? Um... Like, we all understand the appeal to that. But if you're, now we're at the stage where we've been doing that for 80 years or so. And the kids who are growing up in that culture, either within the church or interacting with the church, it's, like, left behind all the things that make it what it is. And so, like, if I go to a a big non-denominational church where they tell me that I need to behave in order to be loved by God or that real Christians behave this way, even though Jesus saved you, but now that you're saved, if you're not behaving in this way, maybe you never really had faith to begin with. And then we're going to have a bunch of fog and light shows and big bands. Can I get all that somewhere else besides church? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I, I feel like that's maybe that's what happened like with my kids. Out of our, We went to a big church like that, non-denominational. But, but they grew up with the Bible all the time. Okay. So I keep taking solace in that. And we you know, took them to Awana's. They knew even to this day. Well, my my two two of my sons they've like they're just completely a wall, and then my daughter, my other son, there. My daughter's like so strong in her faith. Waited till they got married. I mean the whole thing. But when we were on vacation with them a week ago, I was talking about something, and my oldest son said, "Oh yeah," he he said, "Isn't isn't that what's out of?" Um, First Peter two um, that uh-huh. was like forty, and he goes. He looked at me and he goes. I still remember. Now he's not following it at all, but they knew their Bible inside and out. And the one son read his Bible every night in high school, but now they, they're just like, don't. They're not into it at all. Yeah. Well, now I don't want you to hear that this is like a guarantee that okay. like if you do all this, that that's not going to happen because it does. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And that's part of actually what we read in the gospel today, right? That yeah. for whatever reason, and there's many different reasons why, some people reject the, the message, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, we would say the reason that we advocate for our particular confession is it, it's the least likely to lead to that, you could say. Or you're putting yourself in the least spiritual danger of something like apostasy or falling away. Um, because you're actually remaining constantly connected to the things of God mm-hmm. as he intends to give them to you. Whereas if I go to a non-denominational church or a Baptist church where we never do the sacraments and the message is always about righteous living, mm-hmm. right? Um, are they using God's word? Yes. Are they saying things that are true? Yes. Um, but... You're in more spiritual danger because you're not receiving the things that you lack 
that all the things that you lack that you could, right? They, you may have gone to a church like that. Maybe they had a sermon that even now as a Lutheran, you would still say, it was a really good sermon. Like it was all about Jesus. It was gospel centric, right? Like, you know, um, what'd you say? It's just happened for me recently. Yeah, yeah, right? And, and so that is, that to me is always an encouraging example of how, I mean, God knows what he's working with. He's working with a bunch of broken tools, right? Um, so he's real good at working through brokenness. That's, that's, his, that's his gig, right? Um, but we, we best make it our effort to give people as many of the gifts as, of Christ as possible with the way in which he wish, wishes us to give them. And so that's what we do. So that's where I would say if, if you have a loved one or a friend who is going to a church, great. But it doesn't mean that you can't advocate for your own. You know, not because you have to be a Lutheran, but because I'm here because I think this is the most faithful practice of the Christian faith. It's where you're most uh, faithfully receiving the gifts of God, which are to your good. Right? That's why I want you here. But if I have to settle for you're hearing God's word and faithfulness often, but maybe not all the time, even though you're not getting the sacraments, that's a win still. Right? Um, and having it inwardly digested as a child that's still a win even if right now things are up in the air right yeah um but again and then again that's a comfort in the fact that god is coming outside of us right he's acting on by means and so and not just by us right um if you read the joining jesus on his mission book last summer one of the things he points out there is that god like you're joining on his mission right he's already at work in and doing things for other people, and he's just bringing you along to play your part, right? So, um, yeah, so, the, but it is, you can understand the frustration with the hiddenness aspect because it's not sexy, right? And it's not what people expect because they're looking for something that they think they would like, but it turns out that, like, um, like everybody in here has probably had a mountaintop experience with faith, right? Whether it was some big conference or just some breakthrough insight or relational realization or whatever it is, right? Um, there by their nature, they're not meant to last. Those are the sorts of experiences that invigorate faith. In some cases, they create faith, right? Um, at the beginning of the worship Bible study, I shared a quote about that where like the, those experiences are like the fire from heaven that start the flame in you, the flame of faith. But it's, the warm fire at the altar that keeps it burning, right? So they both serve their place. And we have an, a, an obsession with always having the big spiritual fire moments because that's what God's like, right? But they're not mandatory, like born again. Like, yeah, no. you have to be born again. Well, whether know. you realize it or not, that's what baptism yeah, is. Yeah, baptism right. is a big Holy Spirit fire from heaven moment, right? right? Where the, the triune God is specifically focused on you as a small baby and claims you as your own. Right. I mean, that's, that's the highest of spiritual mountaintops. You just may not recognize it because mm -hmm. either you're a baby or you just don't, you right. don't know enough to really appreciate what's mm -hmm. happening to you. So in a sense, it's always an element of your faith. You're just not going to recognize it like you would, you know, some yeah, high-flying spiritual moments. I've had a separate experience on yeah. when I'm an adult no. and no. I have to know when it hit me like a bolt of lightning. Or sure. Like but you, yeah. So the, the reason I like talking about that is you're free to appreciate them for what they are. And be thankful for that, right? Mm -hmm. Having those powerful reactions, maybe it's to a hymn or a song or um, a, a conference or a, a large gathering of people, or maybe it's just one-on-one. -on -one. Those are gifts to be cherished, but 
their, the nature of that gift is that it's temporary, right? It's not meant to be a perpetual experience. Um, I, I think of like Lewis when he talks about love and he talks about falling in love is like diving into the water and then the, the living of the love is like swimming. They're, they're two different things and by their nature they have different functions. And he says if, if falling in love was to be to, to, bro- to broaden that out to your whole relationship, you'd die of exhaustion. Right? You're not meant to be perpetually butterflies in the stomach, always nervous around each other, et cetera, et cetera. Right? That's not the nature of that gift, but it's still a good thing. And so this is a similar deal. Um, I think, yeah, he used the analogy at the beginning of this of the hall versus the rooms. Right? Um, the, one of those experiences can bring you into the hall, but you've got to go into the room because that's where the fire and the food is. Right? And we're talking about, in the hiddenness of God, we're talking about the fire and the food. Um, not not an all-consuming fire, but the fire that warms you and keeps you safe and is always there, right? Um, and in the hiddenness of God, that's what he's talking about here, right? So um, to what uh, Jackie was saying, he has a quote on the middle of 70. To say God is hidden, of course, does not mean that he is absent. On the contrary, someone who is hidden is actually present. They're just not seen, right? Um, so he's not gone. He's just not visible. Okay, verse, or verse, page 71 is where he gets into the theology of cross versus a theology of glory. So we want to take a stab at kind of summarizing those two things. I thought I saw parallels between that and your message today. Okay. To some extent. Because it's like, it's not... It's not just a theology of glory. It's not just, you know, we, we've hit the ground. We're, we're now in ecstasy, you know what I mean, going forward. That's not what it's about, that, that we, I guess, we die each day. And we, and uh, uh, like we part, that, that part of our glory in Christ is, is suffering. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so middle of page 73 um, says, Theology of the Cross cuts against the grain of all natural religion, all what we expect and want in a spiritual system. Okay? So, um, the, um, and he highlights above that the theology of glory. Luther calls this self-aggrandizing, success-centered power spirituality the theology of glory. So he talks about the merging of self-help with spirituality. And a theology of glory is always this, this merger. It's um, you have to do things to become a spiritual powerhouse, right? And it's a theology of glory because who does it end up glorifying? Yeah, you. You, to right? You're the one that's doing all the hard work. You're the one that gains the glory. In what way does that point to Jesus? I mean, that system, Jesus is just sort of like the rule giver, and you're the success story, right? Um, and the temptation of the theology of glory is, is always to bring the glory to the self. Um, and even despite anyone's best efforts at the beginning of that journey, that's just the nature of that path. It will always lead to self-glorification. It can't go anywhere else. Um, and so uh, continuing on there in 73, of course its attraction is understandable. Naturally we want success, victories, and happiness. We will be attracted to any religion that can promise us such things. We want complete and understandable answers, evidence of tangible spiritual power, all conveyed by an impressive, well-run, and efficient institution. Instead, God gave us the cross. 
And the cross is really this emblematic picture of precisely the reality of God as he is versus what we expect. Because it's simultaneously the place of God's wrath and his greatest act of love and mercy, and it involves the death of God for sinners. Right? All that stuff is bizarro nonsense in the world of natural religion. Because the world of natural religion wants you to do the reverse. It wants you to die for the sake of your God, right? Whether it's die through acts of service or living a righteous life and sacrificing your desires or literal sacrifice of people or objects like harvest and all that kind of stuff, all in order to please the God, right? And the theology of glory says that that's all a futile exercise. It does nothing because you can't do any of those things. And so God is doing them in your place by making the sacrifice and living the life that you can't. So it's not just different, it's the opposite. The direction is totally the opposite. It's not a worthy adherence ascension to God, it's God's condescension to the unworthy adherent and making them worthy on his own. <clears throat> Now, once you get those categories sort of distinct in your head, you can begin to see and recognize them everywhere. Right? This is just sort of a basic struggle of all humanity. Right? It's behind all the moralities. Right? It's behind the idea that, like, well, why is, um, why is murder bad? Why is stealing bad? Why should I behave in the way you're saying I should behave? Right? Um, well, to glorify God. It's not to gain spiritual superpowers, but that's always the temptation. Right? Um, and if you, if you fall into that temptation and you're doing well, what do you leave behind? You leave behind humility, and you eventually leave behind Jesus, because Jesus is humility, because he is the cross. And so um, one of the images that I've used regularly here is the image of a staircase versus a circle. Right? And for within Christianity, but really this applies to all religions, within Christianity, the cross is located there and there. And even before I say anything else, you can see the problem here. Because on the staircase, what are you leaving behind? The cross. The cross, right? The cross is just the starting point, and then you're off to glory. Right? Um, and it's through you striving to do these certain things. Right? Um, it's, it's an age-old heresy. Um, it goes by the name of Gnosticism. And most of the new AG Western religions are that repackaged. Some special knowledge that you acquire and you are able to live a certain way and then you become worthy of God's love and affection, etc., etc. Right? Um, so it views the cross as this past thing that allows me now to live in this way. Now, we've already highlighted that when you're at communion, you're literally touching the body and blood of Jesus and you're receiving it, which always brings us back to the cross. So if the cross is just the starting point, then practically speaking in a Christian church, you should just take communion once when you become a member and then you're good to go, right? Because you've received the benefits of the fruits of the cross. And now you're off to your spiritual enlightenment, okay? Um, whereas this approach, which is what Luther advocates, the, the cross is something that's the beginning and the end of the Christian life. The goal is to remain there. Right? 
and life comes along, it tempts to sin. You fall into the sin, which drives you back to God's word. And then when meditating on the word, drives you back to the cross. And that's the endless cycle of your life until Jesus returns or you die. There's no special knowledge, no amount of good works you can do to get off of that cycle. Your life begins and ends with the cross. Right? It's the only way it works. Right? Because, how, I think in your head, we all have a couple of things that you feel like you confess in the confession of sins every single week. Okay, Whatever it is. What are you going to do if this is your system? And let's say this is five years from now, and you thought you were doing great, and then you have like a horrible month or a horrible year, and you start behaving like you did before. What are you going to think? You got tempted to sin, and you sinned. And it turns out you're doing it just as much as you did five years before when you barely even knew anything about Jesus. I'm failed, and I'm hopeless. Yeah. Right? I, I'm failed and because the goal was to become a certain type of person. Right? It wasn't to, um, to cling to Christ desperately. Right? It was to like, use Christ's cross as a jumping off point to become something great. And it turns out I'm not great. So the worst thing is, well, the whole thing must be a lie because it's not really what's real. I mean, who could live up to that? So it's a crisis of faith. Or at worst, you're just thinking, I'm just a really bad Christian. I mean, so bad that maybe I don't even have faith. Right? Um, so let's, let's go to our model. Right? You became a Christian in 2012. Now it's 2017. You're still being tempted to sin and you're falling into sin. Where does that leave you? Huh? Back to the word and the cross. Yeah, back to the word and the cross. It turns out you're exactly the thing that Jesus said you were. And the great thing is that it's exactly that thing that he loves and dies for. Which is why you can't leave the cross behind. Because when you leave the cross behind, you leave your new life behind. And you go back to the old. Right? Because the new life in Christ is never possessed. That's why I'm always talking about receiving why it's so important to understand I think I just spelled that whatever um, why it's so important to understand that God comes from outside of you right because if it's something you never possess it means you always need it and if you're cut off from it you will lose it because you can't generate it or create it in yourself it has to be given right it has to be received That's the aspect of like why it's important for you to go to church that everybody kind of knows but doesn't really know how to say without making somebody feel bad. It's like, well, I think that's why I use the image of just describe to them that essentially what you're doing for your spiritual life is if you just stopped eating food for a month. It's not against the law. It's just really dumb because you'll die. So if you want to you know, rebel against me and say you hate food and you don't want to eat food, go for it. It's just... Eventually, you're going to run up against the reality that you need it. And it's another stumbling block for non-Christians because they think that if 
we're going to church, if we're Christians, we should be better people. You know what I mean? Who they gave look, them that idea? They look at us and they think, you're Christian, you're supposed to be better than that. Who gave them that idea? Christians. We did. <laughs> right? We did. Because we're afraid to admit that we're sinners. Even after God does the incredible thing. There was like this little video meme maybe a year or two ago of a guy, I think it was a little boy, he rescues the sheep that's stuck in a crevice. Oh, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. immediately right the sheep like takes off all scared and then jumps right back right in. Back in the like right 20 back feet in. down, right? And somebody made that a meme and put me after Jesus forgives me of my sins, mm-hmm. right? And um, it's not flattering, right? Your first thought is, that sheep's really stupid, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Nobody likes to feel stupid. Nobody likes to feel like, you know, somebody's helping you out. God himself is helping you out, and it's still not working. And the, that's why the emphasis in this setup is on the cross, because it's not my job to convince people that I'm an amazing person, right? In fact, Christ's powers make perfect in my weakness so that I can point to him, right? Or as Kleinig uh, says, um, that I'm just a beggar telling other beggars where to find the bread, right? That's my job, right? It's not to be a great person who can, like, wow people, right? Um, that's why Paul's always telling people, like, you know, dude, I'm the chief of sinners, right? Because he's essentially saying, if, if Jesus can save me, you're golden, right? I mean, I literally murdered Christians, right? If he, if he loves me and, and forgives me, you're good to go, right? That, and so that's the job. So, um, and this is part of the language that's been lost, I think, in this effort to, to be like everybody else. Because who in their right mind goes around and says, yeah, I'm a crummy person. Right? I'm trying really hard, and, and the, by the grace of God, he's allowed me good things, but I'm really not a great person. Don't model your life after me. Right? I'm here to point you to that guy, because if he lets me in, <laughs> you're good to go. Right? Right? And, and to genuinely believe that. You're not just sort of platitudinally saying that stuff. Right? But you're just like, yeah, I've got no business being here. Right? That was like that one sermon I preached about. Like if you go to a really fancy dinner, and you look around, you're like, uh, this is not my place, right? That's what church is like, right? We're in the presence of God, getting the, the greatest of divine gifts ever been given. <laughs> like, I'm getting that, yeah. right? And that should be, the, that, that should be the, the, the attitude. Because one, it conveys genuine humility. Two, it actually makes you happy because you're no longer obsessing about your own behavior and failures because you're focused on Jesus. Because... All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, and he says, you're good, so you are, right? And I'm just now free to tell other people the great news that, like, hey, you want to go to a place where, like, nobody judges you, you're forgiven by God himself and given the best gifts ever? That's the message, right? Um, and, like, I, I was something, I think it's Dennis Prager, if you're familiar with him, right? yeah. he's a Jewish guy, but he said, that the, the, the best argument against religion is an unhappy religious person. More so than any words. Like, because if they don't know anything about your religion, but you're a miserable person, they're going to be like, I'm not signing up for that. It doesn't seem to do any good for you. Right? Um, so more so than focusing on being able to speak eloquently or say big, fancy theological words, like the attitude of humility and genuine joy that, like, God loves me. Right? Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm a terrible person. Like, I'm not worthy of God's love, right? Uh, And the only good that I have in me now is because of Jesus. 
Like, that is a very, like, I mean, how do you respond to that without just abjectly rejecting Jesus in a, in a negative way? Because they're not asking you to do anything. They're not demanding or judging you. They're simply telling you about this amazing place where people like you who should be judged and demanded of are not. That's one of the reasons that I've, I've thought that the part of the, the cross of the church is to be sinner and saint at the same time. Because you're not a bunch of per- we're not a bunch of perfect people going around telling other people how to live their lives. Mm-hmm. We're a bunch of broken and healed people going to tell a bunch of broken people where they can go get healed just like we did. Right? And so, like, that was one of the one of the common criticisms of the church is that well, it's a bunch of hypocrites, right? Precisely for the reason they outlined. I never understood that because I grew up in a Lutheran church where the service always began by me saying that I'm a poor, miserable sinner. Right? And I've heard people say, we shouldn't say that, it sounds depressing. Like, no, we should say it because it's true. Right. And it's one of the things that only we say. Because we're not all sitting around going, oh, poor, miserable sinner. Like, it's not like the super depressing exercise. Why? I mean, it should be. Like, who's excited about saying I'm a poor, miserable sinner? Well, we're not excited about it, but we're also not totally crushed by it because we know what comes after. Right? We know that we believe in a God who loves poor, miserable sinners like us. And so, in a, in a way, your, your response is going to be like, well, the church I go to is the only place I know of where nobody's a hypocrite because they all say they suck. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's all about the God who loves the people who are sinners. Right? So it's not depressing to say I'm a poor, miserable sinner. It's the truth, but it's also the truth that God loves you and forgives your sins and has given you eternal life in Jesus. Right? And so that totally changes the way you talk about things, which is part of his point here. Right? The theology of the cross is so radically different from things that outwardly appear to be very similar. But they're totally the opposite. Totally the opposite. One is a life of freedom under grace, like genuinely free under grace. Where like, how many times should I have forgiven? Seven times? Oh, seven times? Seven times. Right? Like, however many times he comes to you and repents, you forgive him. Right? That's the world we live in now. That's what Paul's talking about in the Romans text today. That... The old you that was subject to the law is dead. That's what happened to you in your baptism, right? That old you was judged on account of, on account of, of its deeds and, and, and joined to the cross of Christ. It is no more, and the new you is no longer enslaved to the law. You've been set free from the law. So, like, even if you break the law in your new life, it's now under the grace of Christ. That's the basis for when Luther says sin boldly. He doesn't say go out and intentionally sin. He's saying don't let the fear of sin prevent you from trying to do what is faithful because you live under grace now. Right? Um, so that means that anytime you come to me in repentance, even if I hate your guts, I forgive you because that's the world we live in now. Right? So the invitation to the other is a world of a new sort of imprisonment where you got a glimpse of the freedom of Jesus and then it was instantly smothered by these expectations of how a real Christian is supposed to live. Right? And then it became not about Jesus but all about you. And then the pressure returns and the unhappiness returns and the hopelessness eventually returns. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. My, um, my oldest son said at one point when he was, um, I think he was like a senior in high school, you know, raised up his whole life in this, but I'm wondering, because some of the, I think some of how we did too was, or the way we thought was kind of like this. 
you believe, that's your justification. And then there's sanctification, which is a lifelong being made more holy, which that's fine. But his question that he said to me when he was like in 12th grade was, well, what does it matter what I do if I'm already forgiven? If he forgives me everything, then it doesn't matter what I do. And, and, that, and I didn't know how to answer it at the time. And I said, but you wouldn't want to just do it anything because the Holy Spirit's in you. And, but I didn't know how to answer it. That is actually the answer. Is, is the way that I answer that question is I say, well, that's a bad question. Uh, because in what world do you, like, like you can even just use a human example, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm your mother, I love you, I gave up tons of things for you, and I'm asking you to do something basic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that if you don't do it, I'm not going to not love you, mm-hmm. so why do it? Because... Because most of us as human nature want to please the person that loves us. I don't know. Do we? Sometimes. <laughs> we want to, well, we often do, but we want to please them for our own sake. So they'll yeah. like us or love us or whatever, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. You're, you're engaged in a situation where you're saying, well, it literally doesn't matter. I will love you regardless. Right? Mm-hmm. And parents say that to their kids, right? Yeah. You can rob a bank. You're still my son. I'll love you. Right. You're going to face consequences for those actions, but you know, you're still my son. I'll love you. Right? So, why do anything that your parents ask you to do? They're going to love you anyways. There's consequences. Just of, of anything that we do, there's natural consequences. But your son's question is about the eternal things. So, in this mm-hmm. way, the analogy breaks down a little bit there. Hopefully, they love you. Yeah. They want. So, the, the question is not what can you get away with, but what do you want to do? So that's why it's a bad question. The question essentially is like posing like the idea that like, well, if God says everything's permissible and he'll forgive me no matter what, I can do anything I want. It's like, well, I suppose that's true, but do you want to do that? Yeah. Right? Um, Knowing what God has done for you and and the the new life you have in Christ, that should be the question you're asking is what do you want to do Mm -hmm. as a result of this? Not what am I technically allowed to do on some sort of technical question of doctrine? Because right? you, you could honestly say in response to that question, yes, that's true. Yeah. But you wouldn't have any peace. You wouldn't have... No. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and to a certain extent, right, the law of God is written on our hearts. Like, we know mm-hmm. that's not the case. That's why when you have somebody that you love and, and that has done a lot for you, you're not, like, constantly lying to them and stealing money from their purse and... And trying to like undermine what they do all the time, right? Like that's just because that's a like a remnant of the law of God written on the heart, right? right. And <clears throat> the the relationship we have with Jesus is just like the epitome of that, right? Is that um, you know that's the thing that sets you free, because otherwise, like I think what's behind that question is in, in a certain sense the disbelief of the promise, like mm-hmm. it's too good to be true, like. Because if that were the case, I could do whatever I want, and then if I was if I was sorry about it, God would love me. Yeah, that's what we're saying. We we, we keep doing worse and worse things to see if that really is true. You know, okay, you you forgave that, but how about this? You know, you keep doing more, and eventually it comes to a point when you don't care 
if he forgives you or yeah, not. Like that right. hardness of heart. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, I mean, and you can even point to like when uh, Abraham's talking to God about he's going to destroy the city. He says, well, wait a minute. Like, what if there's 100 righteous people? Well, forgive me, God, for asking one more time. What if there's 50? Well, forgive me again for asking. What if there's only 25? What if there's 10? What if there's, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and he says, I will spare that for that person's sake, right? So if the question that's really, if they're genuinely asking the question like, I can do whatever I want as long as I, for, I forgive or as long as I repent, God's going to love me and forgive me? Yeah. I mean, that, that truth is the whole hope of what we're all clinging to, even though we're not asking that question. I mean, if that's not true, we just go home. Yeah. You just, you, I mean, you didn't even get out of bed tomorrow. What's the point? We're, we're all doomed to eternal nothingness and, and damnation because we're screwed. Right? So you can honestly answer that in a radical way because that is the radical nature of the gospel. Right? That is why it's weird. It's weird because only Jesus says that. That's why his disciples asked that question. Like, well, like, how often should I forgive somebody when they come to me? Like, seven times? Like, that's a lot, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no. Like, literally every time they come to you in repentance. Like, as many as it takes. Right? Um, and so, like, in a way, you can start, you've, we've started to see culturally speaking, and we'll, we'll kind of end here, um, that people are rediscovering this a little bit in our country like in, in in very small ways and that's usually the way these sorts of things manifest they're not in grand gestures they're just in like a simple person and their simple faith saying you know what maybe i'm gonna get in trouble for doing this but i gotta do it anyways right so i'm thinking of like the uh the espn anchor who said a prayer for i think it was the buffalo bills player mm-hmm. he's and he said it on live tv and he, mm-hmm. and he even said before he said it, i don't know if i'm allowed to do this but i'm gonna do it anyway um, and he wasn't, you know, rubbing anybody's face in anything. He was just saying a prayer for a guy, right? The same with, there was a, uh, I think a weatherman in Alabama about the tornado mm-hmm. when, they, when they saw that the tornado had redirected and it was going to just like decimate this town. He said a prayer on live TV for the town. Mm-hmm. And just a simple like, oh dear God, watch over these people. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and those are the sorts of things that come from this. Right? That, that's, that's sort of like a, a, like a little peek into the world of Jesus, right? For people who are praying for people they don't even know, who are doing it at the risk of losing job or reputation or whatever it is, right? The only way you can do that is if it's centered on the cross. Because the cross, at the same time, it epitomizes the suffering that comes from being joined to Christ because the thing that he's bringing the world does not, does not, is not looking for and some of them don't want and they will reject it. But it's also the epitome of the very core promise that makes it all worth it, which is that you're telling me that even if I've done like the worst things you can come up with, if I'm sorry for that, Jesus will forgive me and love me? Yes, that's what we're saying. Right? And that's the only hope that I have as well. That's why I'm there. I'm not there to pretend like I'm better than you or make you feel bad about not coming. I'm not that good of a person. I'm there because I need it. Right? And I'm telling you about it because I think you might need it too. Right? And, and you can go the Paul route and say, if it works for me, you're gold, man. Like, if it works for someone like me, you're good to go. Right? Um, and you can honestly say that and, and really believe it. And it's a very winsome thing. I mean, imagine hearing that from somebody. And they're, and, and they're not trying to sort of explain away the weirdness of it. They're just letting it speak for itself. That's the Holy Spirit's job, right?